Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. Welcome back to a brand new edition of the Ariel Helwani Basketball Show. So when we launched this show, I told you that we would present different kind of interviews with different characters associated with the great game of basketball. And this particular episode falls in that category, so to speak, because it is not with a basketball personality or anyone that you would generally associate with the game of basketball, but it's a massive name, it's a big get, and we talk a lot about basketball. Let me explain. Today's guest is the former executive vice president of World Championship Wrestling. He has worked for the AWA, WCW, of course, and then later uh, WWE. In fact, he is now a WWE Hall of Famer. He's the one and only Eric Bischoff, who, if you know anything about wrestling, is one of the most influential names, faces, people in the history of the business for 83 straight weeks he beat WWF, which they were known as at the time, uh, in the ratings. Uh, they were owned by Ted Turner and then later AOL Time Warner, and, and they were kicking their butt. And uh, it's a fascinating story. And in the midst of all of that, they had a great run with Dennis Rodman. And in 1998, and we are approaching the 25th anniversary of this pay-per-view event, they had a tag match which involved Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman going up against Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone. This weeks after the 1998 NBA Finals. And in fact, during the NBA Finals, which we will discuss, Bob Costas referenced them being involved in this pay-per-view. Did so somewhat mockingly and wasn't too happy about it. But there was a moment in, I believe, Game 4 where Malone and Rodman were going for a loose ball and they were kind of wrestling on the ground. And Costas references the fact that they're going to be in this pay-per-view. That was a massive deal. Someone who is sitting at home, 16 years old, watching pro wrestling and also a huge NBA fan, hearing Bob Costas reference a WCW pay-per-view was gigantic. And eventually they had the match and they actually had several matches involving both Rodman and Malone. But the one that happened in July of 1998 at the 1998 Bash at the Beach uh, was kind of at you know the apex of WCW's popularity. Uh, they were on fire, and it's uh, actually, I believe, their second highest-selling pay-per-view. It was a huge deal for them. Everyone was talking about it. Uh, Dennis Rodman skipping practice in the middle of the NBA Finals to appear on WCW Monday Nitro. Michael Jordan is talking about that. Phil Jackson is talking about that. The Bulls are fining Dennis Rodman as a result. It was the type of publicity that you just could not buy. Priceless incredible stuff. And so we go down memory lane with Eric Bischoff about all that because he put the deal together. We talk about all this and more. It's a great conversation. And then we talk about pro wrestling because I can't interview Eric Bischoff without talking pro wrestling with the guy. So I ask him about his career, about the current state of pro wrestling, about Vince McMahon, about AEW, about Tony Khan, about CM Punk, about some of his great memories and regrets. It's a wonderful chat. It's one that I've wanted to have for quite some time. And now here it is on my basketball show. What a world. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with the one and only... Eric Bischoff. This is very exciting for me. I have to be honest, I have been watching content either starring this man or produced by this man for over three decades. Never in a million years did I ever think that our first interaction, our first interview, our first conversation would be about basketball. But here we are. This is the way things go. You know this man. He is the former executive producer of World Championship Wrestling, then became a WWE Hall of Famer, one of the most influential figures in the history of professional wrestling, the one and only Eze e Eric Bischoff in the house. Hello, Eric. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. 
Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm, 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 it's an honor to be here, to be honest. Uh, I, th- I thank you for that. There's so much that I want to talk to you about, but uh, this is uh, primarily a basketball show, so I do want to talk to you about the uh, 25th anniversary of a really big deal in your career and in the history of pro wrestling and in the history, of course, of world championship wrestling. And I know you've talked about this a little bit, but since we are approaching um, that anniversary next month, uh, July will be the 25th anniversary of the uh, 1998 Bash at the Beach, the uh, highly anticipated and much talked about tag team match involving Carl Malone and Diamond Dallas Page, Dennis Rodman and Hulk Hogan, a massive moment in the history of your career and the company as well. Just wanted to reminisce a little bit if we can, and I I may pepper you with some uh, pro wrestling specific questions at the end. Uh, First, let's start here. Um, I believe the first time you did business with Dennis Rodman was in 1995. Do you recall the first time you were ever introduced to him? It may have been at Bash at the Beach uh, in 95, if I'm not mistaken. It's hard to remember, but I, I did meet Dennis once prior to him, you know, becoming active with us in the ring, so to speak. Okay, so it was Bash at the Beach in 95, but Hulk Hogan was a good guy. He was a baby right. face, the red and yellow. And you brought him in just as sort of like a bit player, if you will. Uh, he wasn't quite as famous back then as he later became because he hadn't mm-hmm. joined the Bulls just yet. But um, when you were approached with this idea, and as you know, at this point, you're trying to take over WWF, um, do you recall why you thought that this would be a good idea? And did it end up being a good idea? Like, was the relationship good at the time? Was it a good experience working with him? It was an interesting experience. Let me first say, because I'll, you know, I'm, I'm very honest about these things, and sometimes being honest about things comes off as being negative, and I don't mean to do that with regard to, to Dennis. But Dennis is a very uh, unique person. Uh, I have nothing but respect and, and, and affection for Dennis. He's a very, very good human being. But if you don't take the time or have the time to get to know him, you don't really see that. You see the presentation that that we've come to know, the very outrageous and colorful and slightly bizarre at times character. But the person inside, the private person inside is a very generous person. He's a very kind person. Uh, and he's really, really smart. But I didn't know any of those things when I first met him. When I first met him, I, I enjoyed meeting him. I'm not a huge basketball fan. I never really have been. So I wasn't like awed by him in, as an athlete. But my experience with him was very positive. He's, he's kind of an introvert, really, until you get to know him. And I, I, looking back at that, you know, all I can think about was he was he showed up on time. He did what he was asked to do. He seemed to be having a really good time, and uh, that was it. And as far as it being a good experience, on a scale of one to ten for that night, yeah, I would give it a six or a seven. It was what it was, but I think more importantly, it created a relationship that would become very important later on. Yeah, and in '97, it seems like the relationship takes another. Um, you know, takes another step because now he's on the Bulls. Now he's, you know, the worm and Rodzilla and all that stuff. And he actually, you know, a lot of people talk about the 98 tag match, but there was a bash at the beach in 97 coming off him winning a championship with the Bulls where he he actually competed uh, along with Hulk Hogan and uh, in, a, in a tag match against uh, Lex Luger and the Giant. Do you recall being, I, I actually was impressed with Dennis, you know, coming off an NBA finals and you tall guy, lanky guy, you know, wrestlers, um, excuse me, NBA players in wrestling, like sometimes they could come across as a little bit awkward. I actually thought he did a good job. Do you recall, 
you know, being impressed with what he did in the ring in that tag match. I recall being blown away. Okay. <laughs> so here's here's the background on that. You know, we had to get Dennis together with Hulk and we had to lay the match out. And, you know, Dennis had never been in a wrestling match before. So we agreed that we would get together a few times before the pay-per-view. And we kind of worked it around Dennis's schedule. And we found a ring that we could train in and all that. And, you know, Dennis, now Dennis did show up a little bit late for training. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, and we were a little bit concerned because he seemed, Dennis didn't seem into it. He was very, um, he was just disconnected. Like when he did finally show up, he didn't really look anybody in the eye. He was very quiet. He was almost withdrawn in a way. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be a nightmare. What are we going to do with this guy? And we got him up on the ring apron. And I remember I was watching, you know, from a distance and I'm watching and I can't remember who the trainer was in there with Hulk, but Hulk's in there with Dennis and trying to show him, okay, this is how you do, you know, this is how you do this. And this is how you do this. And Dennis is just looking, not saying a word. And Hulk said, okay, Dennis, give it a try. And he hit fifth gear, did it perfectly, executed whatever it is they were working on. Like uh, it was like an Irish whip off the rope, something very basic, but he executed it. His footwork was perfect. First time it was like, whoa, wait a minute. Where'd he get that from? You know, it's like he had a, uh, a photographic memory. Like you showed him something. If it involved physicality, you just walked him through it one time and he'd do it. It was freaky. Um, and then, of course, once he got into it and they started having fun, there was nothing that you couldn't show him anything that he couldn't do pretty well the first time out of the out of the gate. It was amazing, really. Um, when you have him, like mid-season, he showed up to a pay-per-view, like the day after a Bulls game. How does that work? Like, do you have to get permission from the Bulls, from the NBA for that to happen? How does that go down? No, I was operating under the uh, better to ask for forgiveness than permission yeah. kind of business model. Because if you look back, you know, Turner Sports had the rights to NBA playoff games at the time. So I was walking and my boss was Harvey Schiller, uh, Dr. Schiller, who was the president of Turner Sports and also oversaw the NBA um, franchise for Turner. So um, I was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And I just kind of did what I was, what I needed to do. And I didn't ask too many people for permission. It was really up to Dennis. If Dennis wanted to show up, I was more than happy to have him there. I didn't pressure him to show up. Um, I didn't ask for permission if it would be okay if he showed up. He just, Dennis just did what he wanted to do. That's Dennis. Did you ever get in trouble or did you ever get someone say like, hey, you know, it's getting a little too close for comfort here? No, I never did. Wow. And I should have. <laughs> now, I don't remember what game this is. You, you, you probably will. Oh, yes. You're talking about 98 now, right? Probably. There was a, by this time, our relation, not just mine, but everybody's, especially Hawks, because Dennis to this day loves Hulk. I mean, they're very good friends. And and I had developed my own relationship with, with Dennis, and it was pretty good. And I remember telling Dennis and Carl, I said, look, guys, if it doesn't affect the outcome of the game and there's any opportunity for you to, to just jack your jaws a little bit and maybe look like you're going to do something, you don't have to do anything, but if you could just – Kind of like the old West, man, when the two gunslingers come out and they're slowly reaching for the guns. Just give me that. Just give me that. 
And of course they did. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but nobody knew that but Carl and, and Dennis and I. Okay, so uh, at the time, I'm uh, 16 years old. I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. I'm watching that game. I believe it was game three of the 1998 NBA Finals. And they start to get into like a wrestling match on the ground going for a loose ball. Right. And they continue to tangle and they continue. And there's a sequence there. And Bob Costas is calling it. Rodman and Malone. And Rodman just trips Malone up. They got to call a flagrant here. They've got to call a flagrant. It's the third on Rodman. He and Carl Malone, regrettably, are scheduled to wrestle in one of those bogus events next month. Why Malone wants to lower himself to that is anyone's guess. And Rodman apparently wants to start the wrestling now. And I couldn't believe that Bob Costas was referencing, even though he didn't say it by name, a WCW pay-per-view on the NBA Finals broadcast. I thought that was like a massive moment for you and for the, you know, the company. It was. Were you watching that live or did someone oh, yeah. tell you? But really? Oh, yeah. You must, no, I, I mean, the, the grin on your face when that was going on. Oh, uh, it was... <laughs> I, I pop so loud. I think I was home alone. My wife was doing something, but I I popped so loud for that. That was so awesome because I didn't think they would do it. You know, I thought they they said, yeah, hey, if we get a chance, we'll have a little fun. And I kind of forgot about it. Then you know, I was watching the game. Went, oh my god, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> At that point, did you have the deal in place for them to compete? Oh yeah. Okay, the following yeah. month, that would be yeah. akin for for those that may like, or and I don't even know if you get the reference, but. That would be akin to like right now, it's the Nuggets and the Heat in the NBA Finals. Nikola Jokic, who's the biggest star on the Nuggets, mm -hmm. going up against Jimmy Butler next month in a WWF pay-per-view. But Rodman was a thousand times more popular. I mean, this was he was one of the most popular athletes in America at the time. And so let us go to 98. How did that deal come together? Because I understood, based on what I've read, that it was actually, it was brought to you to bring Malone involved by DDP, but you wanted Macho Man to be his tag partner. Is that accurate? No, that's not accurate at okay. all. Okay. All right, that's what Not that's what he has said in interviews. DDP, wow, that he had to try to convince you to put him in because you wanted Macho Man to team up with uh, with Malone. I mean, I, I was introduced to Carl by DDP. DDP and Carl had, Malone had become friendly somehow. I don't know how, but it's Diamondale's page. You know, once he sets his mind to something, there's no stopping him, no matter what it is. And I, I think he was at a game and threw up the diamond cutter sign and Carl threw it back. So, you know, DDP recognized that oh, Carl must be a wrestling fan and went and engaged and had a conversation with him. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane from Atlanta to Salt Lake City and, you know, blink my eyes and I'm sitting in Carl Malone's house with DDP and Carl Malone and Carl's wife and working out the details of a deal. Perhaps there was a moment on the way there. Um, I may have said, hey, you know, who, who do we – team him up with and ddp was probably already thinking me yeah. and i was thinking maybe savage but it ended up being ddp and i'm glad it was i mean he deserved it okay um that moment where rodman skips practice in the middle of the nba mm -hmm. finals to go to nitro uh you're telling me you didn't get any heat for that from from anyone i mean he got fined it was a huge deal obviously they've talked about it on the last dance documentary no heat from you no wow no. were you nervous now, I I was fairly cocky at the time, <laughs> <laughs> and I was feel we we were doing pretty well at the time. It's it, it's funny how when you're doing really really well, and you're blowing ratings out of the water, and you're making money hand over fist, you can get away with some stuff that if things were going badly, you wouldn't be able to get away with. So, I was kind of riding a wave at that time. I wasn't too worried about it. Were you surprised that he did that? That yes. Rodman, you were. 
Yes. Was it your idea for him to skip practice? Nope. Whose nope. idea was it? His. He just volunteered, hey, I can come by? Yeah. He just <laughs> and, didn't want to go to practice. He wanted to go to Nitro. And and you, of course, said yes. Sent a limo for him, of course. <laughs> uh, did you guys pay his fine or did he pay his own fine? Do you no, recall? I think he paid his own fine. Wow. And then at that point, like, again, these clips are still online. Like, Phil Jackson is answering – Michael Jordan is answering questions about him being on Nitro. You must be on cloud nine right now. It's It was such great press for us. Yeah. I mean, every syllable of those interviews, whether it was Phil Jackson or Michael Jordan or Bob Costas and his comments from, the, you know, the year before, whatever, all of those conversations, every syllable of those conversations were ringing the cast register. And it's funny – because I took a lot of heat from the the wrestling, they call themselves journalists, but you know the deal. Um, the peripheral wrestling media, we'll call yeah. them that. Uh, it was like, oh, Bishop, so he just he's a jock sniffer. He just loves bringing in celebrities. He's overpaying. You know, I paid Dennis Rodman a million dollars to participate in a pay per view, including the TVs that went up to it and the rights okay. to use his name and likeness and all that. It was, I couldn't have. There's no way I could have purchased the amount of media that we received by including Dennis in our in our pay-per-views. I couldn't purchase that media for $2 million. We got so much press and coverage. And my thinking was, you know, at the time I used to listen to, you know, Morning Drive all the time, you know, FM Morning Drive. And it's all, it's a little bit of rock and roll, but it's a lot of sports talk in the mornings, right? And I thought, man, if we can do something to get radio stations all over the country talking about WCW. And then Dennis, you know, came into our lives and I thought, wow, this is going to work. And it worked so well. We got so much coverage and promotion as a result of that. Like I said, it was the best money we've ever spent. Same with Carl. Carl got the same amount of money that Dennis did. Neither one of them were really tough to deal with when it came to money. They were doing it because they wanted to do it. Uh, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm, I'm asking you about things that happened 25 years ago, and I've done some research here, so I totally understand if some of the uh, the details may be foggy. But do you recall ever hearing about the fact that WWF was trying to sign Dennis, and did that, you know, did that put you into an extra gear to try to take him away? I understand maybe Shane McMahon was trying to cut a deal with him. Do you recall any anything about this? No, that's true. That is true. Um, I was in Atlanta. I had a meeting and I was at the airport Marriott in Atlanta meeting somebody. And I got there about 45 minutes or an hour early because I had some other calls I had to make. And I want to make sure I was there early because I don't like being late, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, I stood Ariel up yesterday and was supposed to be on an interview and I completely zoned out and forgot about it. But no um, And I got a call from Hulk Hogan. Mm. And he said, hey, brother, Dennis Rodman wants to hear from you. Shane McMahon reached out to Dennis, talked to him about doing a deal. But Hulk told me that Dennis, because he was friendly with Hulk, would rather do it in WCW. Hmm. But he said, you're going to have to call him right away because the deal's on the table. So I dropped whatever I was doing and called Dwight Manley, who was Dennis's agent at the time, and said, hey, I heard your, your guy's interested in maybe, you know, dancing a little bit with us. And he, he said yes. And probably 24 hours later, we had a deal in place. Wow. Did you ever hear from WWF or maybe down the line, say like you, MF, or you took our deal? No, that never came up. You know, it's no? funny. All the time I spent in WWE, I was there for four or five years, I guess, as a talent and four or five months <laughs> as an executive. But in all the time I was there, it never, the, the, those types of things never came up. 
And at that point, you're kicking their butt, right? Right, 98, like this is post-NWO launching. Oh, yeah. And I believe that was one of your most successful pay-per-views of all time, the 98 Bash in the Beach. Perhaps even the second most successful, do you recall? I couldn't tell you. Okay. Tell but you. It, was a bi- it was a big deal. Like I think over 500,000 buys. You know, it was a massive deal. And we were, we were printing money at that point in time, you know, early 98, mid 98. It wasn't until the fourth quarter of 98 that things started getting silly. Uh, as a result of the AOL Time Warner Turner merger, but uh, at that point in time in July, we were just we were printing money. He wins the uh, NBA championship, and you have a big nitro right before. Like I don't know if it was like the go home one, as they say in the business, the last one mm-hmm. before the pay per view, but pretty darn close. And he no showed. Do you recall this? No, he no showed. Yes. What did what did he no show? Did he no show WCW? He no showed Nitro. Yeah. Huh. And and this is when uh, you know Hogan says he's trying to call him, and in all your interviews talking about it, you kind of take it in stride. And you're like, "That's Dennis. He'll show up when we truly need him to show up, i.e., the pay per view." But I'm just wondering if at any point you were nervous, truly, that he wouldn't show up for the pay per view just because it was no, such a I big wasn't. Deal. I mean, he was unpredictable, and it, it, he was moody. He would get moody, um, but I'm not sure that he was totally committed. I don't. It wasn't like he was contractually obligated to be at Nitro. A lot of the the appearances that he had, especially during the season, were, hey, if he can make it, he'll make it type of thing. Kind of like when he wasn't, and when he skipped practice to come to Nitro. Um, but and I was never worried about it. I had, a, like I said, I don't want to pretend that Dennis and I were super tight. We weren't. We were very friendly and, and we had a good rapport, but I had a better rapport with Dwight Manley okay. because Dwight was on the business side and and that's what I was concerned with primarily. Hulk had the relationship that we really, the anchor relationship, the friendship that we needed with, with Dennis. I had a good business relationship with Dwight Manley. So it was, I was never concerned. Uh, Manley, I do believe uh, represented Carmelone as well, right? Yeah, made things easy, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 super easy. Um, and and the pay per view went off. Uh, obviously, it was a success, but um, people look back on the match with a little disappointment. And I think the story is he was up all night and he was a little sloppy in that match. He wasn't the '97 version of of Rodman that we saw. Do you remember watching that and being disappointed? I I won't say disappointed. I mean, it was obvious that Dennis wasn't quite at his best. But I think that had a lot to do with the fact that he'd been there before. He'd been in that ring before now. It wasn't new to him. He probably wasn't as worried about screwing up as he perhaps was the first time out. So he was a little bit less uh, focused, mm. I guess. And perhaps he was out the night before because that was, you know, I'm sure that happened in the NBA as well. He he was a He was a machine at that time. He was frightening to hang out and party with. Did you ever party with him? Yeah. And uh, like you've been around wrestlers, right? They're notorious for partying. Would you say he was at a different level? Let's put it this way. I went out with Dennis one night. Oh, this is a funny story. I'm not, I'm not, I can't even tell the whole story. No, you can tell. Uh, no, no, I can. No, okay. I can. No, I can't. <laughs> um, but we, we were in New York City. We had a Howard Stern appearance the next day. And I think Dennis was already going to be in New York anyway. And Hulk and I flew into New York with Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart kind of went everywhere with Hulk. And we decided to go out and drink one night. And it was like three or four in the morning. At the time, not anymore. I can't 
party like that anymore. But at that time, I could go pretty well. I, there was nothing for me to sit down and drink. It's almost embarrassing to say, but in the right situation, in the right timing, I could sit down and drink, you know, 12, 14, 16 beers throughout the course of an evening and feel pretty good about it, you know? <laughs> um, and I could keep up with Hulk for the most part. He's quite a bit bigger than me, so I had to be a little careful, but, you know, pretty much drink for drink because Hulk really wasn't a super hard drinker. I could keep up with Hulk. <laughs> By about three or four o'clock in the morning, Hulk and I looked at each other and went, <laughs> we got to get out of here. We just couldn't keep up with him. And he wanted to go and go and go. But yeah, I, uh, I, I tapped out. I, I had to tap out that night. Um, I have heard you tell a version of this story. There's a whole second part that you have told yeah. before. You know this, right? Yeah, I, I've told it in our private shows when I know there's nobody recording. <laughs> oh, I've seen it on YouTube uh, where I think you had to you had to get him to go to the Howard Stern show because it was like a seven o'clock uh, taping. Yeah, it was a seven o'clock taping and all of us were hung. Everybody was super hungover except for Dwight Manley and Jimmy Hart. Wow. And this was, you know, we had had a whole two hour sleep, right? Maybe three at that point. And we were at the uh, Waldorf Astoria Hotel and alarm went off and it's like, okay, we got, we got to get Hulk up. And Hulk is like push. When you try to wake Hulk Hogan up, it's like pushing a freight train uphill. I mean, he's just, once you get him going, it's okay. But getting him going is just brutal. He's just slow rolling. You know, and I think that's just the way he's always been. So I assigned Jimmy to get Hulk going. And I said, Dwight, you know, could you go get Dennis? Dennis had uh, a room right next door to us, but he had a big suite. And Dwight went over a couple of times, knocked on the door. Dennis wouldn't answer, wouldn't answer, wouldn't answer. And now Hulk's just about getting ready. Probably 45 minutes have gone by now. Hulk's just about getting ready to go. We can't find Dennis or get Dennis to answer the door. So finally, Dwight says, here's the key. Go in. See if you can get him up. I said, you go in. You're his manager. No, no, he'll be fine. Just you go in. So I went in and I opened the door and and I'm going to be – delicate here as I can. Uh, I opened up the door and it was a suite. So I walked into the room and I hear noises. I didn't, couldn't make out what those noises were exactly, but I knew that somebody with a pulse was in the next room. And of course I opened the door and Dennis was having a great time. Let's put it that way. And I, I stood there and like any red blooded American, I went, Oh, Dennis, Dennis, we got to go, Dennis. And as I'm walking, as I'm turning around to walk out, I'm kind of sneaking a peek as I go. And I'm not going to mention the lady's name because I'm just not. But yeah, it was that it was a hell of a way to start the day. <laughs> what, a, what a character. Um, you, uh, by the way, uh, and I'm not insinuating that this was the person that was there, but uh, he was, you know, in a very well publicized relationship at the time, talked about on the documentary as well. I always wondered why you guys didn't try to bring Carmen Electra on Nitro. Was there ever any talks of that? And I'm glad you mentioned her name and not me, because I can say, I didn't say no, a word. I, I was just thinking of, of, of relationships that he's had, and, yeah, and that was a famous see, one. I wish you could have the visual that I have still. Um, we actually did when they got, um, no, they got married, right? Yeah, they got married for a minute. Yeah, for a minute, yeah. And then there was the there was an nba strike in february yep and i got a call from nbc 
a guy by the name of Gary Constantine, who used to be the executive producer of The Tonight Show. And that's how I got to know Jay Leno. And we got to do all that stuff that we got to do over at NBC. And, and Gary and I are still friends to this day. I got a call from Gary saying, hey, Eric, uh, we've got a big hole in our schedule here. And I ran it up at the I ran it up the flagpole. And if if WCW thinks that they can create a special to fill in one of our two hour holes on uh, in prime time, we'd love to have you. I got an invitation to wow. do a two hour special on NBC. And the idea was, and I think it was on Valentine's Day. It was either Valentine's Day or the day before day. I think it was the day before day of. And we had this idea that because we've always had weddings, right? In wrestling, right. it's kind of a thing. I thought nobody's ever had a divorce. <laughs> and they were still amicable. You know, it wasn't like a hostile thing. You know, it was just, it's just, it, yeah, you go your way, I'll go my way, whatever. We'll, we'll meet on the weekends occasionally. Right, type right, of thing. Right. And she was up for it. Wow. Early discussions. And we were going to have her on the show and we're going to go the opposite of a wrestling wedding and do a wrestling divorce and then have a big brawl spill out as a result of it. But the brain trust at Turner Broadcasting at the time, when because I, I had to go, I had to get permission because it was doing something on another network, right? And I had to get permission. So I went to Harvey Schiller and said, Hey, I've got this amazing opportunity. And what do you think? And I got shut down. By Turner Ad Sales, the geniuses at Turner Ad Sales didn't want WCW on any other network but Turner. Mm. To this day, I'm still dumbfounded. And this would have been a one-off? Yeah. And they didn't think that the opportunity to be on this massive platform would have come back and helped them? No, I, I don't know. I don't know what their logic was. I just got yeah. a hard no. You know, and these were people that were... Yeah. much more senior than I. So it wasn't like I could corner him in a cafeteria and ask him, what the hell are you thinking? I couldn't do that. It was just a flat out no. And did you then try to take that idea and put it on Turner? No, no. It died I, with that. What, it I just mean, died. No. Yeah, it just died. I think part of it, you know, Dennis was excited to do something on network television. He'd already done wrestling and, right. you know, we'd pretty much gotten everything we could get out of that with Dennis. It wasn't like he was going to end up in a, in the ring as his next career or anything. It was, it was fun farming and made a couple bucks and we had fun and it worked for us. But I, I think by that time, Dennis's um, infatuation with being in the ring was pretty, pretty much satiated. And would you say that was uh, apparent in his last appearance in 99 against Macho Man? It, it just didn't feel quite the same, quite as big. Yeah. But I, but again, I think the, the, the new car smell had worn off. He didn't have the same adrenaline. You know, he wasn't as jacked up about it as he was initially. And I think just because it wasn't scary for him anymore. Been there, done that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, did you only do one match with Malone? Or no, he was in the Leno match too, right? He was in a Leno match. He was in a Leno match. Okay. Overall, easy guy to work with? Carl was great. In fact, I was just in Salt Lake City. Uh, and I don't know if Carl still lives in Salt Lake City, if he's back down in Alabama or where he lives. I've, lo I've lost track. I haven't talked to Carl in... Ooh, seven, eight years. Um, but I was in Salt Lake City recently, and I, I drove by his car dealership. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go in and talk to the general manager and tell him who I am. Hopefully, he'll recognize me and see if Carl still lives in the area. Because Carl, Carl was a great guy to hang out with. He was about as grounded of a human being as anybody I've ever met. I wow. Did you have you ever met Carl? I've never met Carl. No, I've never met. Him. Such a just such a solid, solid citizen. Just 
is you wouldn't know, you know, yeah. obviously when you see him, it's, he's fairly impressive physically. But if you just, if you didn't know, if you got dropped out of one of the UFOs that are flying around Las Vegas right now and were introduced to Carl Malone, you would never guess that he was the superstar that he was because he was such a just down to earth guy. To that point, in all your years of being involved in the wrestling world, and a big part of wrestling is the the celebrity cameo, if you will. You know, Mike Tyson with WWF was a major turning point for them at around the same time. Who was the best celebrity slash athlete that you brought in to work with? Oh, I, I really enjoyed working with Dennis just on a personal level. He was just so interesting and fascinating that it was fun to work with him. Um, Carl was easy. Carl was just the easiest person I've ever worked with, but I really enjoyed Kevin green a lot because he was like a little kid. He was so excited and he brought so much enthusiasm and effort and passion to it, to, to the ring that it was hard not to really, really, he really stood out to me. Steve McMichael, you know, Steve gets, a, you know, you look back at his matches and I think Steve got so excited. He wanted to do more than he was capable of doing. And, you know, he's an athlete, he's competitive. So he sees Ric Flair in there doing certain things or he sees Arnie Anderson, you know, forgetting that these guys have been doing this even at that time for 20 years, right? It takes a minute to learn how to do all that stuff and they make it look so simple. And of course, Steve being, you know, an athlete, being competitive and just loving what he was doing, much like Kevin Green. Uh, we'd go out there and try to do things that he just really wasn't quite ready to do live TV. And he, you know, he had a couple, couple moments there that stood out that weren't the best, but Steve was, he was a lot like Kevin green, man. He brought so much passion to it and he was having so much fun for, for a good period of time. And then he, he kind of went off the, Steve went off the rails a little bit and probably spent a little bit too much time doing enough things he shouldn't have been doing that it took its toll on him for a bit, but he was a great guy and a good friend. Dare I ask, who was the worst? I never had a bad, ever, ever, ever had a bad, take that back. Nah, I was going to say Snoop Dogg, but my, my, my interaction with him was so limited. That's probably not fair. He didn't even really know who I was. So I, I, I should, I wouldn't expect that he would have, been any more professional than he was but that was the only time that i ever hit a speed bump was working with snoop dogg for and it was just for a minute and it was while i was in wwe by the way as far as wcw goes every celebrity that we ever worked with and had charles barkley shack kevin green mongo obviously malone dennis can't think of who else we had george foreman right muhammad ali i got to become friends with muhammad ali is one of my one of the experiences that I cherished the most in my career was getting to know Muhammad Ali, traveling over to Pyongyang, North Korea with Muhammad Ali, and developing a genuine friendship. So much so that in 97, 98, I was invited by the uh, by New Japan Pro Wrestling. They actually flew me, my wife, and my two children over for a big New Year's Eve show. And little that I didn't know, but Muhammad Ali was going to be there as well. And a couple of years before that, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali and I and others went to, obviously, to North Korea. And that's where we developed a relationship. And I'll never forget this. 
I walked into the arena, the Tokyo Dome, and went back to the green room, VIP room, whatever you want to call it. And there was Muhammad Ali. And I'm with my son and my wife and my daughter. And Muhammad sees me. And I, I go over to him to shake his hand. And he, well, he's holding my hand, takes me over to a couch. And, you know, he, he had to whisper yeah. in order to understand him. I'm going to try not to cry when I tell the story because every time I tell the story, I break down. He asked me if I thought that he embarrassed himself when he was lighting the torch at the 96 Olympics. Wow. He said, did you, he said, did you see the opening ceremony? And I said, of course I did. And he said, do you think I embarrassed myself because wow. of, you know, he was shaking yeah. and I, I welled up. I said, Muhammad, it was one of the greatest moments in sports. I, I, I see it. My eyes welled up. I couldn't hardly even talk for a second. You know, I assured him that I thought it was one of the greatest things I ever seen because it was. Right. And uh, he just nodded his head. So, okay, that was it. And then he went over and was having fun with my son and joking around. Wow. My son was like 14 at the time. And Somewhere, Howard Bingham, I don't know if you know the name Howard yes, Bingham, but yep. Howard Bingham was there. He was the photographer. And I, I remember him taking a photo of Muhammad and my son, Garrett, and Muhammad was giving him a big hug. And I've been trying to track Howard. I know Howard's no longer with us, but I, I met his son, who was also in North Korea, believe it or not. And uh, I'm trying to track him down and see if there's any way to find that photo, because I'd give an arm and a leg for it. Uh, what a life you've had. What a career. I, I'm a big fan of the podcast with Conrad Thompson, 83 Weeks. I love uh, the way you tell stories and I love hearing about the stories. I'd be remiss if I don't ask you a few wrestling specific questions, no, if you don't mind. Whatever you want, man. Are, are you still, uh, you keep up with the product? Are you watching these days? I watch occasionally, you know, I keep up on the business side of the wrestling business. I'm not too interested in what's going on in the ring and on television. Um, I, I was going into WrestleMania because I thought the Bloodline storyline was one of the best storylines that I've seen in professional wrestling in 30 or 40 years. I mean, it was that, that was high. The, wow, that's oh, high praise. I, I that was it was so well crafted in, in terms of storytelling and writing. I loved it, and I got a little bit. I'll, I'll be honest; I was a little disappointed when Cody didn't get it. Mistake? And, huh? Mistake? We'll see. We'll see. I, you know, and I, when I was asked that question shortly after WrestleMania, I, I I said, I think my response was something to the effect of, six months ago, I would have said that was a huge mistake. But having seen what the WWE creative team is capable of doing, I'm going to give it some time. I'm going to see what's next and see if they actually have an even better path for Cody Rhodes. And I, I I watched Sunday night when I got here to Tampa with my son, we watched the A&E biography series on Dusty Rhodes hmm. and the underdog in the comeback, you know, which was, that was a dusty story. You know, he was the son of a plumber, grew up in the poor side of Austin, Texas, and fought his way up and became this big superstar, but he never got that WWE title. And now it's Cody's turn. And I think what we're seeing is a version of that long that long ride to the top. And if I'm right, it'll be one of the best things that I think that we've ever seen in professional wrestling creatively. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be hot. <laughs> I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, did you think that Vince McMahon would stay away or did you 
always believed that he would come back in some way. No, I, I, in fact, I don't know if you, if you got a chance to listen to Strictly Business or not. On that, on Strictly Business, all I ever talk about is the business of the wrestling business. Mm -hmm. But I, when it was announced that WWE was for sale, I went, nah, it's not for sale. Vince is never going to go away. And then when it became apparent that it was for sale or that they were looking at options, I came out and called Endeavor. I said, if, if, if there is a transaction, Endeavor is going to be the player. It's not going to be Fox. It's not going to be NBC Universal. And I happen to know a number of the other companies that were actually bidding or wanted to bid. And uh, it was none of those. I said, it's going to be Endeavor. And Endeavor came out and essentially tried to deny any interest. Um, but I didn't buy that either, just by the way the press release was structured. So um, when the Endeavor deal happened, it was like, okay, Vince is, th this is Vince McMahon going out on his own terms. That's what this is. Vince's involvement in the business, there was no way he was going to let anybody push him out of his own business. That was my opinion. And now what I'm seeing is my interpretation of it is, is this is Vince writing the end of his own story and not letting anybody else write it for him. Do you like this move for WWE? Oh, I love this move for WWE. Look at the leverage they're going to have in negotiations. Are you kidding me? Endeavor and UFC and WWE as a leverage package. Phew. Yes. And it's going to be good. For, I think it's going to be good for UFC. I'm not a, I don't know the UFC business model really well, or I don't know it at all, to be honest, but I know what they're not doing. They're not doing licensing and merchandising to the extent that they have the, they have the potential of doing. And that's an area. If you look at the business model for WWE, their licensing and merchandising division is very mature, very sophisticated, and very well embedded in the marketplace. And I think UFC is going to benefit from that. Conversely, I think that WWE is going to benefit from certain strengths that perhaps UFC has. I think combined, they're going to have great leverage when it comes to negotiating for venues. That's, that's a hell of a lever, right? Uh, so I think there's going to be enough... I hate to even use the word synergy because it's so overused yeah. and abused, but I think there is legitimate, not press release synergy, but legitimate functional synergy between the two companies. Do you think it can work with uh, Paul Levesque as, as head of creative with this situation? Like it, it certainly worked when Vince was gone, but now his wife, who's Vince's daughter, leaves. Like It seems like straight out of a movie, the whole situation. Do you think it can sustain this way, or do you think eventually he takes over creative once again until he dies? Until Vince dies, I feel like he's. Kind of, that's. I feel like that's what he wants. That he would be the head of creative until the day he dies. Yeah, I don't think Vince is ever going to die. Really. Okay. That's uh, <laughs> when 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 the meteor hits and wipes yeah. out everybody else, there's going to be cockroaches and Vince McMahon, <laughs> and he'll be booking matches with the cockroaches. Right. Just, yeah. No, I, I definitely we got a glimpse of Olivex capabilities it's not i don't you know look i wasn't there i don't know what i'm talking about really but i know the system fairly well and i know the people fairly well and i still have a couple of really close relationships there and i think we got a good look at what paul levesque is capable of and i think what paul levesque is best at doing is managing the process 
sifting through the good ideas from the bad ideas and, and filling in the blanks. I don't think Paul's sitting at a table coming up with ideas. I think Paul has a very sophisticated, highly, highly capable team of people around him uh, from Bruce Pritchard all the way down. Uh, Ed Kosky, who's been there since the early 2000s, is a phenomenal writer and very, very experienced. So I think what Paul's capable of doing is letting people who are good at what they do do the best they can without a whole lot of interference. That was the problem with Vince, my opinion. You know, the four or five months that I was there, you couldn't take a breath creatively unless it was approved in writing by Vince McMahon. And even once it was approved, he could change his mind 45 minutes later. I mean, it just, it was tough right. and stressful, but it did bring out the best in a lot of people. So there may have been a method to that madness. Nah, there wasn't. It was just him. Uh-huh. <laughs> but Paul, and the cool thing about Paul is that Paul's been on the receiving end of that. Paul knows what it's like to have someone sitting at the head of the table who's kind of all over the map and changes their mind in a minute's notice and just reacts to the last person they talk to and things like that. So I think Paul will bring the best out of the extremely talented writing team that they have. When's the last time you spoke to Vince? December. Oh, was there like a catalyst for the conversation? No. Just checking in? It may have have just been a text. Okay. So you're still on good terms? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, Would you ever go back? No. Have you ever been approached about going back? No. And if I was 20 years younger, in a heartbeat. If if I got a phone call from my buddy Bruce and he said, hey, I'm thinking about got an idea, interested in coming back, but I need one of your fingers. As long as on my left hand and on my right, I'd, be, I'd probably go for it. You know, I mean, I love my time there and I love working with so many people there. There's some, I, I can't say enough about the quality of the people that work in WWE. It was a, it was a blessing to have an opportunity to work there. But at this stage, I'm 68 years old and I, I live in, I live in a beautiful part of Wyoming. I live right outside of Yellowstone national park. And it's been my dream to live there since the time I was a little kid. And I've worked my, ass off throughout my life to have what I have there. And at this point in time, I just don't want to be away from it any more than necessary. And the the idea of driving or flying back and forth and doing TVs and nah, not anymore. Um, famously 83 weeks, you, you, you toppled WWF. Uh, can AEW do the same? Do you see in them what you guys had in the in the mid nineties, not even n- nothing even remotely close to it. Why not? They have all the money in the world, which is a nice thing to have. But without vision and without a true understanding of the industry, it's just a really cool hobby. And that's what AEW is for Tony Khan. It's a it's a hobby. It's a really 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 well funded hobby that we all get to watch and participate in on television. But if you look at the creative, if you look at some of the strategic decisions they've made, look what they're doing right now. Look at the mess that they've been in for the last six months with CM Punk. It's ridiculous. And they bring CM Punk back one more time. I think he's, he's going to be um, 
he's not going to be good for morale for the locker room. He's got a pattern that proves that he's fragile as hell. He's just not is he's not what people perceive him to be. He can't live up to the expectation. He's not really that good. He's not really that much of a draw. Yes. He, he raised the revenues for the pay-per-views when he first got to AEW because he'd been off TV for a long time. He hadn't been, he hadn't been in the ring uh, wrestling ring, uh, since he left WWE, and and I will give give Phil Brooks uh, credit, he was able to keep that mystique intact. He didn't overexpose himself from the time he left WWE to the time he arrived in AEW, and because he didn't overexpose himself, he had a big impact when he first came in. But if you go back and you kind of look at the, the only you know the only thing we can look at and 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 track and judge really because we're not we don't have access to the financials is television ratings. And yeah, when Phil Brooks came in or CM Punk came in, yeah, ratings went up. Three weeks later, they went right back down to where they were before. When Wembley was announced for AEW, and, and I knew it was going to do well, somebody asked me, should they bring CM Punk in and try to sell it out? I said, no, try to sell it out, but do it without CM Punk. Do it with your roster. Don't create the perception that you need CM Punk in order to be successful anywhere. And sure enough, they sold 60, 65,000 tickets. No CM Punk, not even on the card. CM Punk's announced they sell an extra 1,200 tickets. He's just not, he's not the needle mover that people think he is. And to bring somebody in that has caused so much disruption and damaged the brand. I mean, CM Punk sat there in a press conference right next to Tony Khan and made him look like a moron. He just emasculated him right there in public, ripped the company, destroyed the locker room, and they bring him back? I don't get it. Don't so you would have cut ties? If you were Tony, you would have cut ties? Yeah, in a heartbeat. I'd have grabbed the mic out of his hand and just sent him packing. Not, not worth, it's not worth it. Are you speaking from experience? Have you ever been in a similar situation? I mean, there's no. been- Never to where you thought someone was a cancer, but for whatever reason, you kept them around and you're kind of feeling like you're seeing the same thing play out here. No, I've never been in any, I've never been, I've, I've kept people around. I didn't think had a lot of value, but there were reasons why maybe they were already under contract. And I'm going to be paying them anyway, right. use them whenever I can put them on the road, send them off on house shows, things like that. But never have I sat next to somebody who publicly humiliated me. Hmm. And the, and my company, and my roster, and just sat there feeding his face with cupcakes while he was doing it. It was just it was just such a bad. I, I mean, I felt bad for Tony. I really do. And I it, I'm, I got angry for Tony. I, I it was it was the most humiliating thing I've ever seen. Have you ever met Tony? Oh yeah, a couple times. And do you think that he can at least take them to and maybe it's not 83 weeks and all that, but like. Do you feel like he can be the leader that takes them to the next level or have they hit their ceiling? They've hit their ceiling. Look at their, look at their ratings for the last, I mean, they've got 850, 900,000 hardcore fans. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's all they're going to have. Now they can do something every once in a while. And the curious peripheral fans, occasional fans will show up to see what it is, but they're going to hover around 850, 950. Every once in a while, they hit a million viewers. And if you look at their weekly ratings, it's it's a flat line. It's you know, a little bit of variance here and there, but for the most part, nothing. It's nothing has moved, no matter what they do. 
Um, Tony just doesn't have the vision. Tony doesn't really understand the television business. He doesn't know how to produce. And I don't know that he's capable of recognizing that and allowing people that do know how to do it because he's surrounded by people that do know how to do it. But Tony wants to be the booker of the year, you know, the Dave Meltzer booker of the year and be recognized as a creative guy. And he's not. It would be like me wanting to be recognized as a heart surgeon. I can be a big fan of heart surgery, but that doesn't make me a heart surgeon. Tony's a big fan of wrestling, but that doesn't make him a, a television producer or a wrestling producer. Uh, by the way, do you think that he should move mountains to keep MJF? Uh, do, you, do you feel very highly about his you know, trajectory and his future? It's clear that there's some interest there from WWE, and he's built up this, you know, I'm going to be a free agent January 1st, 2024. Is this a big deal for them, in your opinion? I think the world of MJF as a talent, I like him as a person. Um, I've crossed paths with him a number of times, uh, and and I, I just can't say enough great things about his talent. I don't know what MJF's goals are. We've never had that kind of a conversation. But if I'm Tony Khan, I'm, I'm going to work pretty hard to keep MJF on my roster. Okay. I'm going to have to, because if you look at that roster, there's not a lot of other talents that are anywhere close to MJF in terms of overall ability and connection to the, there's a lot of great wrestlers there. Athletes. There are, you know, Chris Jericho's, you know, he's, he's on the downside of his career. He's 53, 54 years old. You know, Brian Danielson, eh, he's kind of a part-timer uh, at this stage of his life. But if you look at the the younger crop of regularly featured talent that you have in AEW, three-quarters of them could walk through any mall in America and nobody would know who they are. MJF, is, MJF stands out. He's gotten himself over. So I'd, I'd do whatever I had to do to keep him. Can he succeed in WWE? He's awful smart, so yeah. Okay. You he have to be smart. It. You can't go in there, you know, 24 years old, thinking you're, you know, God's gift to the wrestling industry with a chip on your shoulder. By the way, I don't think that's really MJF. That's the MGF that he wants you to see. But I, I, I have had enough conversation with him to know that he's really, really, really smart. And my guess is he's smart enough to be able to easily move on to that WWE roster if that's what he chooses to do. And and so to be clear about something I asked you earlier, like if someone, call, let's say Tony calls you up and says, I don't need you to travel, but can you help me? Can you, can you be a consultant? Can you help me navigate the wires, et cetera? Are you at all interested in anything in the wrestling business anymore? Or are you completely retired? I wouldn't be interested in working with Tony. And, that, and, I, and I like Tony Khan. I like the person Tony Khan. Tony is Tony has a very very generous heart. He's a good human being. But the truth is in order for me to have any positive impact, not just me but anybody, to have any positive impact on the process, you have to be in the process. Hmm. You can't do it remotely. You've got to be in there and get your hands dirty and sweat and you know, be miserable and eat bad food and do all the things that go along with, you know, working 16 or 18 hours a day to make this product what it's capable of being. So if, if I were to get a phone call from Tony or anybody else, this is here, here's a million dollars a year and you can, we can just do it on Zoom. I, I wouldn't do it. 
because I know that it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't, it won't be successful in order for me to have any positive impact in any wrestling environment. I'd have to make it the most important thing in my life. And I'm just not willing to do that at this point in time. Not that I don't love it. And there's parts of it that I really do miss a lot. Like what? The creative process. I really miss that. And what's ironic is I'm so much, I'm so much better at it now than I ever was when I was doing it because I've learned more. You know, you learn from your successes and I had some, you learn from your mistakes and I certainly had some of those, but then you also learn by observing and reading and talking to people and doing other things. You know, I produced a lot of television that had nothing to do with wrestling. Uh, I, my partner, Jason Hervey and I had our own tele independent television production company for, I don't know, 12 years. And we were one of the more successful independent television production companies in non-scripted in Hollywood for a long time. We produced a lot of television, created it from scratch in our heads over a beer in a restaurant, whatever, took that idea, shaped it into a presentation, attached the right talent to it, sold it to a network, and then produced it and delivered it to them. And I had a blast doing that. But I also learned a lot. I learned so much that could be applied to formatting and structuring wrestling stories. So I think that combination of outside professional wrestling experience, producing, creating and producing and selling, with the background that I've had, obviously, in professional wrestling, probably would make me really, really dangerous in, in a good way as mm -hmm. far as being involved in creative. But I just don't have the passion for it anymore. I just, to, to, to commit 12, 14, 16 hours a day of my life to it is just, it's why it didn't work out in WWE. I'm, I'm not answering my phone at 2 o'clock in the morning, right. fans. I'm just not doing it. And if I do, you're not going to want to talk to me anyway, because <laughs> it takes me five minutes to wake up. <laughs> What's your biggest regret? Is there one that stands above, like one that you wish you could take back? You know, until last Sunday night, I would have said absolutely not, because I'm here today talking to you. I've had an amazing, amazing career. Think about the things we just talked about, the people yeah. I've got to work with the travel, the things I was able to see, bringing my family over to, to Japan and, and having the Japanese that I was doing business with. We spent like 10 days there on, on their dime and they took us all over Japan and had some amazing experiences that you would never have as a just an American tourist in Japan. Um, I could never look back and say I regretted anything. But I think now I wished while I was working with Dusty, because Dusty Rhodes was kind of a mentor to me. I don't I, mean, I don't want to say mentor, that's overstating it, but he, he really did take me under his wing. He really did make it easy for me to feel really comfortable when I first got to WCW. You know, I rode to towns with Dusty. It was Dusty Rhodes, Janie Engel, his assistant, uh, Doug Dillinger, his head of security, and me. The four of us were always going back and forth to TV, you know, and traveling and you know, I went hunting with Dusty and we did some things, a lot of things away from the business, but I never really got enough time with him to really appreciate just how talented he was. And I wished I would have, I wish I would have asked more questions. I wished I would have dug a little deeper 
beyond the surface with Dusty because he's just a wealth of experience and knowledge and, and vision. That's the one thing, vision, baby. I got to have the vision. He had that vision. It wasn't just a word that he threw around. He really had it. And same with Roddy Piper. I, I regret the people that we've lost and I had access to. I regret not taking the time to get to know them better. That's the other thing I regret. Could, could I ask, and just uh, two more, and thank you so much for the time. This has been fantastic. Is there a moment, something that sticks out, like when you were your happiest, like you think back and like, that was the apex. That is something that I, I talk about with my grandkids or want to talk about, where it just felt like it was all good at the top for you, just beautiful to look back on. There were really, there are two things that stand out as a highlight to me. Because I don't think about the past too much, mm -hmm. good times or bad times. It's just, you know, there's nothing I can do about any of it. You know, if I learn something from it, great, move on. But I don't dwell on the past at all. I don't own one piece of memorabilia. If you came to my house, there's not one WCW-ish thing, wow. photograph, anything. It's just not, it's not who I am. But the first day that I showed up, um, my first day of work at AWA, working for Vern Gagne in 1987. That was a pretty cool day. <laughs> and after launching Nitro and then consistently beating WWE in the ratings, the ratings would come out on Tuesdays about 4.30. About 4.45, I'd get a phone call from Ted Turner. And he was just, he was like a little kid. He was so happy. You know, and to get, you know, Ted Turner was kind of a big deal, yes. you know, and I didn't have a real, you know, it's not like I knew Ted well. I, I had never been in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Ted. I'd you know, been at corporate functions with him and things like that when there's a hundred other people around, but to see that phone light up and see Ted Turner's office, you know, on my caller ID is like, Ooh, this is pretty cool. And he was, he was, it was so much fun. Ted was having more fun than I was. And I was having fun watching Ted. It was great. That is amazing. Um, I could ask you about specific things all day long. Uh, I could keep you for five hours, but I won't. But just one last one, if you can indulge me. I've always wondered about this. That Speaking of first days, and I was wondering if you were going in this direction. The, 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 the first day at WWE when you showed up on Raw, after being such a bit arrival, right? And, and it maybe got personal at times and, you know, the butts and seats and all that stuff. Is there something that sticks out from that day? I can, like I always remember watching. I'm a big like body language guy and wanting to know like what experiences are like and all that. And I just was wondering always like when you showed up to the arena, what was that like? You show up there. Is there something that sticks out that first face to face with Vince? I've always wondered that. And then the hug was tremendous between you you two on the stage. But just like the yeah. behind the scenes stuff, if 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 there's anything that comes to mind, I'd love to know. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because it was when Vince Vince called me and said, hey, because people don't realize this, but WWE had called me the year before and asked me to come in. But it was Jim Ross that called me. And Jim Jim and I, no, Jim and I are really good friends now. We're, we're all good. But at the time, Jim still had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder regarding me. He, Jim still felt like for some reason that I was responsible for him being let go, even though he requested his release. All I said was, sure, if he wants to go, let him go. Why keep a guy that doesn't want to be here? And, and I knew Jim pretty well. He, he, crabby Jim Ross is not a pleasant experience anyway. 
but somehow in Jim's mind, that equated to me having him, having uh, fired him. All right. So anyway, Jim Ross calls me up, and this is a year before I actually came in. And it was right before the 4th of July. And over the 4th of July, it's my wife's birthday. My father passed away on the 4th of July. So it's kind of a little family reunion, friends. And, and I got friends that come in on their Harleys and whatever. It's a big deal. Has been for 20 years or more. Anyway, it was like three or four days before the 4th of July. And I've got friends coming in on their way, literally on their way into Wyoming to visit for a week or so. And I get a call from Jim Ross. And he was very circacious in, 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 you know, relaying any information. Yeah. Boss, you know, Hey, Eric, how you doing? Think about, you know, maybe boss think about maybe bringing you in and, you know, having a look, maybe see if we can do something together. And I said, well, Jim, what do you, what do you have in mind? Well, don't really know, you know, just kind of run some ideas around. So Jim, you want me to drop everything that I'm doing? I didn't say it this way, but what I was thinking was you want me to drop everything I'm doing, fly in, to wherever it was for WWE on a Monday, flying on Sunday and then be there Monday and then fly back. You don't want to tell me what I'm doing. There's no contract on the table. You just want to know if I'm willing to show up. And the truth is the, the honest truth is I had gained a lot of weight. I was not TV ready. And if you go back and look, even by the time I got there I, a year later, I was still pretty chunky. But I, I knew I wasn't TV ready. I had friends and family coming in for the 4th of July. And I could tell that Jim really didn't want to make that phone call. He It's the last thing in the world he wanted to do that day was call me and have me come in. So I, I passed. I said, yeah, I really appreciate the offer. And, and I'm glad you guys you know think enough of me to invite me in. But I'm good. No, thanks. So the following year, I'm guessing Vince went, eh, maybe I should call him. Mm. <laughs> And I got on the phone with Vince and uh, it took me about a minute and a half or two minutes before in my mind, I knew I was going to go. Wow. Uh, Cause it was an opportunity for me to kind of end my story the way I wanted to end my story. It didn't end well at WCW. And I thought, you know what? I, I know I'm pretty good as a talent. I know I'm pretty capable of doing some fun things. There's a whole lot of people in WWE. I've never had a chance to work with. And that's just, as a performer, that's always fun. So I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do this. I thought it would last a year, maybe two. And that way, when I finally close the chapter of my professional wrestling career, I can do it the way I want to do it and go out on a high note. So I went in, back to your original question. One of the things I told Vince on that phone call is we can't tell anybody. I mean, we've got to keep this secret. And I said, Vince, I'm going to tell you the truth. I knew you were going to call me today. This is not a surprise call because someone in your office who I'm friends with called me yesterday to tell me you're going to be calling me today. And I said, we can't have that because if this leaks, it's going to ruin the fun, right? So I said, I'll, I'll cover my own airfare. I'll cover my own hotel. I'll take care of all my trance, get to the billing, all that. Because the minute somebody in the travel department sees my name on a email it'll get out so we did that stephanie knew obviously vince uh attorneys knew i think shane probably knew linda obviously and i think that might have been it at wow. that time so i'm at the hotel i told them where i was at car comes and gets me now it's now it's about five o'clock right 
four, four o'clock, five o'clock. Car comes and gets me, brings me over to the building, and I'm in the limo with the windows all blacked out. Can't can't see in, but I could see out. So the limo pulls into the building, and I just sat there. I didn't I didn't want anybody to see me. It had to be a surprise. So I agreed to just stay in the limo until somebody came and got me to to make our entrance. <laughs> so I'm sitting in a limo, and I felt like a monkey in the zoo because. Guys are coming by and they're trying to peek it. They uh, don't realize that I can see them, right? Yeah. Guys got their face up against the glass. They're peeking in, trying to figure out who's in that car. Yeah. Who is it? Who is it? I was laughing my ass off. And then Stephanie came in about 20 minutes before we were to walk out, half hour. She came in and it was the first time I'd ever met Stephanie face to face. And uh, Stephanie sits across from me. She goes, are you nervous? <laughs> I said, No. I'm excited, but that's not the same as nervous. Really? You're not nervous? No, not at all. I'm just happy to be here, and it's going to be great. I can't wait to get out there and see what the reaction is. And she looked at me like, you know, oh, you can't be serious. So she leaves. She goes, okay, well, good luck. We'll see you out there, you know. And then Vince comes in about two minutes later. Hey, pal, how you feeling? <laughs> Nerves getting to you? No. Why do people keep asking me if I'm nervous? I've done this before. It's not that I'm excited, but I'm not nervous at all. Huh. All right. See you out there, pal. And I once I got out of that limo, because all the production people, anybody that didn't have something really imminent to do, important to do at that moment, were all kind of hanging around the limo because they wanted to see who it was. When I stepped out of that limo, the genuine look of shock on people's faces was just something I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. And the other thing I will never forget is how welcome everybody in the McMahon family. There was still some talent, Arnie Anderson, Rick Flair, you know, but Linda, Vince, Stephanie, Shane, they were so gracious and so welcoming me. I mean, I felt like I was home. As wow. weird as that sounds, given the yeah. the battle and the nasty things that we did to each other and, and publicly and not so publicly, uh, to feel that much a part of their world, really, from the first night, made me feel real good. It was, it was, it was a very unique experience. Well, this has been tremendous. I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time. Really appreciate all the time you gave us today, a little reminiscing, a little contemporary stuff. Uh, keep up the great work. I'm enjoying your takes on the business all the time on, on your various shows. And uh, congratulations on an incredible career, really. Uh, I've been watching you and admiring you from afar for a very long time. So uh, great to meet you, Eric. And, and thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And continued success, brother. You're heads and tails above a lot of people in your industry and, and you've worked hard and you've got a lot of credibility and that's why I respect you as much as I do. So you keep up the good work. Thank you. I appreciate I'm, it. I'm riding off into the sunset, brother. Your career is just beginning. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Take care. Oh man, how great was that? That was tremendous stuff. I could have gone legit five hours asking about uh, the early days of AWA and then WCW and then NWO and Bret Hart and Goldberg and Hogan, Nash, Hull, the WWE run. Just a wealth of knowledge. What a life. What a history. What a legacy. 
But it was fun talking specifically about the Rodman and Malone deal, and then obviously some of the wrestling stuff, which I'm sure if you're a hardcore fan or even a casual fan, uh, you will have appreciated as well. Thank you so much to Eric Bischoff. Really appreciate his time. That was tremendous stuff. Perhaps we could do it again sometime and talk about a whole host of other things. But for now, we are out of time. Thank you for your continued support. Much love to all of you. Thanks to the production team. Thanks for continuing to rate, download, subscribe, and review. I appreciate it more than you know. Thanks once again to the great Eric Bischoff. And we shall be back very soon for another edition of the program. Appreciate you all listening. I'll talk to you next time. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.